Well, in January of this year, uh, we began as a church. Let me just fix this. Please work. Please work. There we go. All right. Uh, in January of this year, we began a focus as a church on prayer and revival. Uh, revival is an increase in the power and presence of God in our lives and in the church. And again, I kind of mentioned in that prayer time the gap that I often feel between what God has for us, his promises, and all that he can do, and where we currently are, right? <laughs> and that desire, that, that desire for revival is that desire that God would close that gap, that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he would do things that we cannot do in our own strength. Amen? Uh, and so we've been focusing on that, and as we move on from Easter, I'm going to be going through the book of Acts in uh, the New Testament while also keeping an eye on prayer and revival. So going through Acts, but also paying attention to what does this book have to teach us about prayer and revival. Let me give a little background about Acts in case you're unfamiliar with it. It was written by a man named Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So Acts is sort of his sequel to Luke, which is the story of Jesus, and Acts is the story of the early church. Uh, We learned from Colossians 4.14 about Luke, that he was a doctor, first and foremost. So he's a very educated Greek man. He was also a historian. Uh, He was a traveling companion of Paul. We see when we're reading through Acts, there's a time in Acts when it goes from third person, they, 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 to we. And that's when Luke joins the missionary team there. And so he's writing first person accounts, talks to the eyewitnesses. And so Luke and Acts are very trustworthy accounts. Uh, In Luke 1, 1 through 4, we actually read this last week at Easter, This is how he sets his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I mean, you read that and you see, okay... And if you've ever heard it, it'll be like, oh, the Bible is like, you know, a game of telephone. And the stories of Jesus were like handed down over centuries. And then they were like, this is the opposite of that, right? This is someone who is an educated historian and doctor saying, listen, I investigated this. I talked to the eyewitnesses and I've written up an orderly account for you. And then Acts, he begins this way. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit the apostles he had chosen. So again, he's writing history here. He acknowledges that he's not the first one to write these things down, that he's talked to those who have already written down accounts, which include Mark and Matthew. Okay, He's talking to eyewitnesses. One of the interesting things you see in Luke and Acts is that he has long sections that are not in other Gospels where it's clear that he interviewed people like Cornelius, you know, interviewed people... Uh, like Mary or Philip or Stephen, long sections where maybe some of the other apostles weren't present, but because he was able to interview eyewitnesses, he has longer accounts that might not show up in other Gospels and not in Acts. And again, this is history. This is not once upon a time in the magical land of Israel. This is writing down what happened. He's probably writing around the 60s or so AD, chronicling the time from 30s to 60s when Jesus died, rose again, and then the time of the early church. Um, Some of the reasons we say that is that it kind of ends abruptly. Paul's still alive. It ends abruptly while he's in prison. And also he shows no knowledge of the destruction of the temple, uh, of the the revolts that happened in the late 60s, early 70s in AD. AD. He he doesn't show any, any knowledge of that in what he's writing. And so he's probably, again, writing around the 60s AD. 
So I'm going to read Acts chapter 1 this morning, and then we're going to look at what this has to teach us about prayer and revival. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is, a field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, that there be none to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means, to apply it to our lives. Reveal yourself in deeper ways to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I go through Acts, we might read longer passages, but I'm not focusing on every single sentence in that passage this morning. I want to focus on what's known as the ascension. In verse 9, we read about Jesus taken up into heaven, that he had risen from the dead, he spends time over 40 days with his apostles, and then he is taken up into heaven. And the ascension is one of those things that often gets overlooked, right? You think about the life of Jesus, the death and crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection 
Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and then his return, but often the ascension kind of gets overlooked as something that's not that important. Well, this morning, we're going to look at it. We're going to understand why is it so important, this ascension thing. What does it have to do, especially when it comes to prayer and revival? And so three things in particular that I want to focus on, why the ascension is so significant. First of all, it shows us Jesus' divine authority. His divine authority. Again, going back to verses 6 through 9, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Just notice again what's going on there, right? Even though Jesus has died and risen again, they still think that the focus is this earthly kingdom, that Israel that is under Roman authority, that Jesus has come to overthrow Roman authority. And now they're excited, right? Wow, he rose from the dead. He can't be killed. You know, he's going to go and he's going to overthrow Rome and they can't stop us now. And Jesus is like, you're, again, your focus is too small. You're focused on earthly things. He says instead, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up from their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Again, they are hoping that Jesus is going to set up a national kingdom, a political kingdom here on earth. And he's like, no, I've got a bigger kingdom in mind. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a worldwide kingdom. I'm the king over all the cosmos here. I'm ascending to the right hand of God in heaven. This is not just about Rome. It's not just about Israel. This is about the world, that I am ascending to have divine authority over everything. Let me just share a few verses that talk about where Jesus is now. Acts 7, this is when Stephen is about to be martyred, killed for his faith. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, 21 to 22. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean that Jesus has ascended? He is at the right hand of God the Father. He is in authority over everything. He reigns now over everything. Everything is in submission to him. And so, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for our prayer life? What does that mean? That we are now petitioning the one who reigns over everything, who rules over it all. And so he encouraged us to pray boldly. John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. This is one of those verses I've mentioned, right, that either you look at it and you try to explain it away or you take Jesus at face value and what he's saying and you say, there's something we're missing here about our faith. There's something we are woefully falling short of in our prayer life, in our holiness, in our life, that if these are the promises, this is what I talked about when I talked about the gap between everything that God has promised and where we currently are, If this is what he's promised us, listen, I have gone to the Father. I'm at the right hand. I have authority over everything. And so ask in my name. 
you will live as I've lived. You will do what I've done. And we look at our lives and we say, I'm not doing what Jesus has done. I'm not living as Jesus has lived. Help us to understand what this means. That there is a level of living. There's a type of discipleship where we are living as Christ lived and asking boldly in his name, and he is doing those things that we're asking. Again, don't just explain this away. Well, you know, this is what it means. This is why he didn't really mean what he said. No, this is, these are incredible promises, and these are calls to deeper holiness and deeper discipleship and deeper Christ-likeness. He reigns over everything. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is in authority over all. And you know what that means? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is one of the greatest scriptures in the whole Bible, right? It's just the, the comfort that it gives to know that because he reigns over everything, he is always working all things together for our good because he has the divine authority. And if we don't understand what he's up to, it's not that he doesn't love us and it's not that he doesn't have the power. It's because he's working things for good and his good is not the same as what we think is good. He's thinking on a deeper level, on a bigger level. But he is always working all things for good because he has ascended and he has divine authority over everything. Some of you remember Ray Labby, great man who was one of the missionaries we supported. A friend of our church used to come and preach, passed away 10 or so years ago. And every time, you know, you'd talk to him and say, Ray, how you doing? His response was always, is Jesus on the throne? Then I must be okay. It was just a great response, you know? Is Jesus on the throne? Then I must be okay. Is he still reigning over everything? Then I can know that he's always working everything together for good. I can rest knowing that he's in control. Even when I don't understand what's going on, what he's up to, I can rest knowing he's on the throne. And we look around and we know that things are not yet the way they should be. We live in what the theologians call the already not yet dynamic. That he has begun to reign, but he will not put everything right until he returns. And now we still live in this dynamic where the enemy is still at work. The evil one is still wreaking havoc, but Jesus reigns over all. And for whatever reason, he has allowed this for this time, given us time to turn to him in faith. But one day he will return and put a final end to evil. Until that day, we continue to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Because one day, as it says in Revelation eleven fifteen to 17, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. It says, One day Jesus will return. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Heaven and earth will be merged, evil will be destroyed, and Jesus will reign with us forever. We will be with God. Amen? That's what we have to look forward to. Until that day, we live in that already not yet dynamic. But Jesus is on the throne. He has ascended. He's working all things together for good. He's the one that we pray to, the one who has authority over all. The second significance of the ascension is not just that he has divine authority, but he also has divine advocacy. One of the songs we sang this morning was Before the Throne of God Above. It's a 
song that is taken from the scriptures that talk about how Jesus is at the throne as our advocate. That whenever there are accusations leveled against us by the enemy, whenever we level accusations against ourselves, whenever we feel the condemnation, says we have one who's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, our lawyer, our advocate, saying, no, 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 no. I already took all the condemnation. I already drank the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom. There's nothing left for them. They are not guilty. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 tells us, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's so much in those verses, aren't there? He's saying, he's looking back at the Old Testament. He's looking at how the priests offered animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. And he's saying, that never takes away sin. That was the shadow pointing to the real thing, which was Jesus and his death on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice, which has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, now, when God looks at you, he sees you as not guilty because you're in Christ, you're in his son. And he's your advocate, your heavenly advocate. He says, I already took all the punishment. They are not guilty. And we are being made holy, right? We're not perfect now in how we live. We are being made holy by him. But before God, before his throne, we're not guilty. Jesus is our heavenly advocate at the right hand of the Father. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, there's Jesus in this verse as our advocate, as the lawyer before the Father, pleading our case before the judge. I've taken the punishment they deserve. They are not guilty. So he says, even when you sin, remember, you have an advocate before the throne of God above. Jesus is there. There's no condemnation left for you. No matter what the enemy says, no matter what any other person says, there's no condemnation left for you. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 33 to 34, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Is this clear? I think these verses spell it out pretty well. Where is the ascended Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. He has divine authority over everything, and he is our divine advocate, our heavenly lawyer as it is. So that he speaks to the Father, to the judge of all the world on our behalf. They are not guilty. Thirdly, third reason, and last reason why the ascension is so important is divine intimacy. Going back to Acts chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
again, we have the benefit of hindsight, but you think about those disciples and how they were crushed when Jesus was di- when he died, right? When he was crucified, they were crushed. They followed this man. They thought he was the Messiah, and then he was dead. But then he came back from the dead, and he's with them again, and they're excited again. And then he says, I'm leaving again. 40 days, and I'm gone. How can this be a good thing, Jesus? You just rose from the dead. You can't be killed. Why would you leave us? And Jesus says, it's a good thing that I'm going. Because you think about it, if Jesus rose again and stayed on earth, you know, if you wanted to meet with God, you'd have to go probably over to Israel to meet with him. Or maybe if you went on tour, you know, you could get tickets to come see him in Boston. But instead, he ascended to heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God within each believer. So even though the disciples must have been like, how is this a good thing that you're leaving us, Jesus? Saying, no, it's a good thing. Because through my Holy Spirit, I am going to be present with each and every one of you. You're not going to have to get a ticket over Israel to go to meet with me. I'm going to be present. John 14, 12 through 17, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for me. You, ask, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with, us, with you and will be in you. See that? The spirit lives with you and it will be in you. Why is the ascension so important? Because instead of having a risen Jesus living somewhere that you have to go visit, now he has ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to be God in each of you. That when you come to faith in God, he puts you, he puts his Holy Spirit in you. That you have that level of divine intimacy. Amen? I mean, I know we live this, for many of us, it's like we, we know this, right? We've lived this. But this is just when you step back and think about it, mind-blowing, that the God of the universe would take up residence in us by his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? It's not like the old day where there was a temple and God dwelt in the Holy of Holies and you needed to go to that temple to meet with God. He lives in you by his Holy Spirit. You can commune with him at home, in your bedroom, on a walk, on a mountaintop, at the grocery store, that he lives with you. You are God's temple. This is what was promised in Ezekiel, the prophecy in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Why does the ascension matter? Because Jesus has authority over everything now. He's not someone living here on earth. He has authority over everything. We pray to the one who reigns over all, who's working all things together for good. He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. No matter what condemnation comes our way, no matter what slander and judgment, we have one who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, saying, you know what? I took all the punishment they deserve. They are not guilty. And then there's divine intimacy. He ascended to heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit so that God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. 
Romans 8, 15 to 16, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And you know, one of the things that Jesus is doing, speaking of divine intimacy, what's one of the things he's doing up there right now in heaven? John 14, one through three says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is, what he says here is, is, is uh, it's part of the engagement speech that a, a, a husband or a, a groom-to-be would give to the bride-to-be, where he'd talk about how, you know, I, I betrothed myself and I'm going to go and I'm going to build on to my father's home and then I'm going to come back when it's done to take you to be with me. Because in those days they lived and they'd build on to the family house. And Jesus is adopting that intimate language, that marriage language, to say, I'm going to heaven, I'm preparing a place for you, but I'm coming back and I'm going to take you to be with me forever. That's divine intimacy. Not just that God dwells in us now by his Holy Spirit, but one day we will dwell with him forever. Amen? That's the significance of the ascension. And I encourage you, first and foremost, pray boldly because the one you're praying to reigns over everything. Those promises that we see that he's promised such incredible things and what we're experiencing is not that. It's not because he's a liar. It's because there's something about the way we're living, the faith we have that just is not quite there. Ask him to increase our faith, increase our holiness. And he is our divine advocate. Whenever you feel that condemnation, whether it's self-condemnation or the condemnation and judgment of others or the voice in your head condemning you, you have an advocate, a lawyer, Jesus at the right hand of the Father who has declared you not guilty. And he has come to live in you by his Holy Spirit. Because he has ascended, he has sent his Holy Spirit and we can know him and have that level of intimacy with him today as we look forward to the day when he returns to take us to be with him forever. Amen. Let's pray, and then we're going to respond in worship. I encourage you, as you pray, even just look up beyond the ceiling. Look up. Just as Stephen looked up and said, look, I see heaven open. I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Even as Stephen was losing his life, even as he was being executed for his faith, he looked up and it said his face was like an angel as he saw, no, Jesus is sovereign over everything. This is not out of his control. He is always at work for good. Jesus, we look up, we see you at the right hand of the Father. And we know that we must be okay because you are reigning over everything and you are good. You are working all things together for good. Lord, we know that you are our divine advocate, that no matter what judgment, no matter what condemnation comes our way, you have taken our punishment on the cross and you declare us not guilty. And Lord, you have sent your Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would Give us a deeper level of intimacy with you through your Holy Spirit, that we would walk by your Spirit, hear from your Spirit, 
be conformed more and more to your image, Jesus. We thank you that you have gone to prepare a place for us. We look forward to the day that we'll be with you forever. And until that day, Lord, you've told us to go and to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So, Lord, send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel, to love our neighbor, and to point people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.